We're going to be in Philippians 2 today. Uh, The book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul from prison to church in northern eastern Greece, and uh, he was very close to them. If you remember in the book of Acts, Paul was ministering in Philippi, and he was followed around by a possessed slave girl who was screaming at the top of her lungs, these men are the servants of the Most High God, and uh, an annoying voice. And uh, Paul cast the demon out of her, and he and Silas were invited to go to jail and be beaten. And then they were politely asked to leave town. But the small church that they had planted took root. And the Philippians had supported Paul uh, several times. And now while he's in prison in Rome, they have sent him a gift to help support him. And Paul writes back to them that this thank you letter, uh, but he also wants to encourage them regarding joy and peace in their lives. And uh, they were living in tumultuous times under the threat of persecution and needed to understand that joy and peace were really theirs that they could have it even in all that time. And we live in tumultuous times, and there are many applications that we can take from the text. And if there's anything I need in my life today is joy and peace. Our lives are so busy, and it just seems that almost every circumstance and person around me wants to rob me of my peace and joy. Uh, There's no joy or peace in the news. There's no joy or peace driving around town. And when I get together uh, with my extended family, uh, there's always somebody that wants to rob me of my joy and peace. And uh, the first, uh, in the epistle, Paul addresses four things that can rob us of joy and peace. And the first is circumstances. And as I said, Paul is writing this from prison where he's about to stand trial in front of an unstable dictator and uh, he was standing trial for his life, and and that that can rob you of joy and peace, right? And in chapter 3, Paul deals with false teachers robbing us of joy and peace, and in chapter 4, he deals with our minds robbing us of joy and peace. And so if your joy and peace are being stolen from any of those things, I would encourage you to read chapters 1, 3, and 4. However, tonight, we are dealing with chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, And that he's dealing with how people can rob us of our joy. And so from chapter one, he's moving from outside conflict to inside conflict. Does anybody here know the vision statement for the church? Love God, grow disciples, share Christ together, right? Together is sometimes the hard part, right? Uh, we, we are all very different people, and if it was not for Jesus Christ uh, in our lives and what he's done, most of us would not want to hang out with each other. We, we have very different personalities and different hobbies and different opinions, but we are family. And some of us are the crazy aunt and uncle or cousin, but we are still family. And uh, none of you, of course, But there have been Christians in my past that have gotten in my nerves, and there has been conflict. And I don't know how many of you have ever experienced a church split, but I have. And and it's such a horrible experience that I don't ever want to go through that again. The church that that I went through that with was never the same after it happened. 
and it was never again an effective witness for Christ and the community. And churches typically aren't destroyed from without. Churches are destroyed from within. And there are some small divisions within the Philippian church, and Paul handles it modestly in the chapter. And this is very different of how he handled it in Corinth, right? The Corinthian church had people divide, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. In this chapter, Paul is not going to correct behavior, but rather he is going to speak to the motivations and dispositions within the church to address issues before they get out of hand, like it happened in Corinth. So tonight, I hope to lay the foundation of who we need to be in order to do this life together. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time. We pray that you would open your word to us. Help us to receive what you would have in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and those in heaven, and those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, to the Father, the Father. Therefore, right? And, and most of you know, when you, you come to a therefore in the passage, you have to look back to see what it's therefore. therefore, right? So if you turn back a page to chapter 1, verse 27, you can see what the therefore is referring to. Verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul addressed how we are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ in a hostile world. And here, in chapter 2, he's going to talk to us about how we handle conflict within the church and conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel at the same time. And if you're here on a Wednesday night, I'm assuming that you want to live a life Worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's right. Paul begins this section with a reminder of how, we, how much we owe Christ. God has given us so much, and, and we need to be thankful and humbled by all that God has given us. And humility is the key to living a life of joy and peace within the body of Christ. So Paul starts off with four if statements. And if here doesn't mean if like we use it. It's a rhetorical if. It's like saying if the sun rises tomorrow, and, and you know, it's, 
the sun is going to rise tomorrow. Whether there's clouds or not, the sun is going to rise tomorrow. So it's if and it is a fact. And your Bible might translate it as since. If there is any consolation in Christ, the consolation that we uh, receive from being in Christ is, to me, immeasurable. Uh, My mother passed away this past December, and my father and sister preceded her, my grandparents on both sides preceded them. And the consolation that I received from being in Christ, that I will see them again in a few years. You know, and, and there's also consolation, you know, of my kids following the Lord and knowing that we may be separated sometime in the future for a time, but there will be a reunion in heaven. And the consolation of being in Christ is more valuable to me than anything else in the world. And, and, you know, just talking to people in the body here, we most a lot of us have, have experienced the consolation of Christ just in the last couple of weeks. And on top of that consolation, God consoles us through every difficulty that we go through in life. <clears throat> Number two, if there is any comfort in love. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, God is the God of all comfort. He's not... Partial comfort is not some assurance or reassurance, not human empathy. God's love for us is the source of all comfort in this life. God knows what I am going to do tomorrow, and he still loves me. That blows my mind. And not only that, he knows what you're going to do tomorrow, and he still loves you, which even blows my mind even more. And he never threatens to take away his love. And he will love us as much tomorrow as he does today. Number three, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. What would we do without the fellowship with the Spirit? Think, think of everything that you have gone through since you've become a Christian. Uh, you know, all the outer and inner turmoil in your life, all the spiritual attacks, all the wisdom, all the protection all of the things that we have gone through that no one knows anything else about, it's, it's our own private thing, the Holy Spirit has been there with us each and every step of the way, and he has been with the, in the trenches with us together. And through our fellowship of the Spirit, we also get the fellowship with each other. In spite of our differing backgrounds and experiences, there is a bond between us because of our fellowship with the Spirit. And number four, if any affection and mercy. Think of all the tenderness and mercy God has shown us through our lives, throughout our lives. Take into consideration the mercies that he showed us before we became Christians. You know, as we tally up the blessings that we have received from God, we now have a responsibility to give what we have received to those around us. The world lives in a system where people give to get. Every fable that we have, uh, there's a moral that if you give something to someone, you'll eventually get back something. You know, kind of a paying it forward type deal. And, and, but that's not how Christianity works. You know, to have received so much from God personally and not to give consideration to those around us would reflect not just badly on us, but it would reflect badly on Christianity and God. 
and, and, and would be acting in a way that is not worthy of the gospel. Everything that we have received should color our interactions with people, both Christians and non-Christians. So verse two, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul is giving us a command, but he doesn't want us to obey based on his authority. He has apostolic authority to say this, but he wants us to give consolation and comfort and love to other Christians and fellowship with affection and mercy to other Christians, not because it is a command, but out of a desire to give him joy and, and also to give God joy. And not as a task to be checked off our to-do list, oh, I have to be nice to this person today and I have to be nice to that person. You know, rather, it's an overflow of the consolation, the comfort, the fellowship, and the affection we have already received from God. So what does Paul ask us to do? One, being like-minded, one accord, one mind. Paul is not commanding uniformity. We are not to be robots. We have each very different personalities, but we are to be like-minded. Just as Christ prayed in the garden on Good Friday, you know, John 17, 11, Holy Father, keep, Holy Father, keep through your name those who have, you have given me that they may be as one as we are. And then having the same love, 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter exhorts us, above all things, have fervent love one for another, for love will cover, cover a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Peter learned his lesson. You know, in Matthew 18, he asked Jesus how many times he should forgive his enemy, seven times? And Jesus is answering, you know, no, 70 times seven. We as Christians are going are to go through life with a forgiving spirit. And my flesh revolts against this. My flesh wants to say, you sinned against me once, you're dead to me. You know? And it's so hard to live a life of forgiveness. Love covers a multitude of sins. Honestly, sometimes my love for people doesn't want to forgive one sin, let alone a multitude of sins. And there are people that have done some rotten things to me, and they are totally unrepentant, and, and I admit I have trouble forgiving. It's not in my human flesh and nature but, you know, we've all heard of people having truly horrible things done to them. In a room this size, I know that there are a lot of people sitting right here who have had unspeakable things done to them. And yet it is this command. I, I remember listening to a Corrie Ten Boom teaching, and she was talking about how a Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch um, political prisoner during World War II. She hid Jews in her house and she was sent to the concentration camps. And her sister died there and her father died there. She got out. And when she got out, she was speaking at a church in Germany. And one of the guards came up to her and said, please forgive me. And it was like, she can't, I can't do this, you know. And, and, but, she, you know, the spirit came through her and came upon her and she was able to do that. And she was able to follow the command of Paul. And, and you know, I, I, I know that horrible things happen, but not much happens more horrible than spending your time in a concentration camp and having your sister and father murdered, with, you know, being there. 
And honestly, my mind wants to forgive them, but my heart doesn't always follow my mind. So how do we live this life of forgiveness with the divided hearts and minds in our lives? Is there, is there any consolation in Christ? Is there any comfort in God's love? Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Is there any affection and mercy? How much have you been forgiven? How much have I been forgiven? We are, are going to get into this more in verses 6 or 8, but we have been forgiven so much that it is wrong for us to withhold forgiveness to others. Or, you know, are we resolved to be like that unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 who's been forgiven the 10,000 talents? You know, most of you know the parable. The, guy, the servant comes in and is forgiven 10,000 talents, which is like $100 million or something. And uh, he didn't forgive his fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, which was like $30,000. You know, we have been given, forgiven more than $100 million in debt. And, and am I unwilling to forgive my brother and sister who have a $30,000 debt to me? If we do not forgive our brothers and sisters, we are hypocrites and have no comprehension of what we've been actually forgiven of. And then there's the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive our sinners. Again, those are sin against us. And this is going to be hard to hear, and it was hard for me to study out. But if, if any of us are holding a grudge against a brother or sister who has done us a wrong, no matter how great, it's not their fault. It's my fault because I do not have enough love for them to forgive them a multitude of sins. I'm going to repeat that you know, because it, it's, it hit me hard when I thought it. If, if we are holding a grudge against a brother or sister who had done us a wrong, no matter how great, it is not their fault. It is my fault because I do not have enough love for them to forgive them the multitude of sins. It's my forgiveness. Unforgiveness in my heart is my fault. I can't blame anyone else. They did this, they did that. You don't understand. No, no it's my fault. So what is the conduct of life that Paul has asked us to live? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is toxic on a national level. If you look in history, you can go through the names. Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, uh, the Kim regime, the military junta in Myanmar, uh, the, the, now Putin in Russia. Selfish ambition cloaked around nationalism leading nation after nation into military or economic destruction. Selfish ambition is toxic in society. Our politicians revel in selfish ambition and, can, and, and also in conceit, and the nation applauds. And, and we see the results in our own country. Selfish ambition is how this country runs. Our society actively rewards and applauds selfish ambition. 
Every job posting that you answer should start with the qualification section saying selfish ambition and conceit, you know, as your first requirement for the job. You know, if you go into an interview and they ask you, do you think you can do this job? And you answer, well, I'm not sure, but I think so. You are never going to get that job, right? You have to say, yes, I can do it, and I'm going to do it so well, I'm going to ensure your company's success, because by being selfish and and ambitious, you'll succeed. If uh, I'll succeed, and you'll succeed with me, right? You know that's that's what you sell. And God's economy works a little differently, right? Just just think of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, and not who hunger and thirst for success and position. And there's another who is known for his selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is what Satan is known for. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, the classic uh, description of Satan's fall. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. I, I, I. Chuck Smith had an assistant pastor named Romaine. He's, he's, he just goes by Romaine like Prince and Beyonce. Everybody knows who he is. You just say Romaine. He used to say, me, myself, and I are the trinity of stupidity. I I love that. You know, it's stuck with me forever. We are never less like Christ than when we have selfish ambition. And selfish ambition in the church, where selflessness and other-centeredness are to be what we are known for, is destructive every time. Selfish ambition leaves a trail of casualties wherever it's practiced, and it's deadly to the church. Selfishly ambitious people, they they just don't care about the damage that they do to people around them. And when they're done and they move on to another church, they'll be unselfishly ambitious there. It's just... Selfish ambition is probably the most destructive thing in the church. And you should notice, though, that ambition is not condemned here. We need people to be ambitious for the kingdom of God. The church is desperate, and it desperately needs people that are ambitious for the kingdom, ambitious for God's glory. And then there's conceits. Conceit is pride, plain and simple. Pride is to think that you are better than other people. Proverbs 13.10 says, by pride comes nothing but strife. And when we compare ourselves with each other, we can become proud. What does the world take pride in? You know, money, power.
power, intelligence, beauty, talents, you know, just to name a few. But when we compare ourselves to God, we quickly see our differences can't even be measured. In Daniel 10.8, Daniel has a vision of an angel, and he says, I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. You know, when David came face to face with an angel, he did a face plant, and, and yet in the throne room of God, the angels can't even look on God. That's how far below we are. So what is the remedy to selfish ambition and conceit? But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, this doesn't mean that one person can't excel another person in some area. A couple of years ago, EJ and I did some work on a house, and by, by doing, we did some trim work. And by doing trim work, I mean I held the dumb end of the tape, and, and he cut and co- the compound miter joints, and I got to play with the nail gun a little bit. You know, We all have talents and giftings that we can compare against each other and always make ourselves look good. And people are better than me at certain things, and I'm better at other people than certain things, and God gives us talents and gifts, right? We have to know our limitations. You would never want me up here leading worship. You know, I, you know, I, I, that's natural. That, 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 that rhythm comes naturally to me. And, and every person here has been created in the image of God, and God loves each one of us to the exact same extent, and God gives each of us uh, one perfect role in the body of Christ that is indispensable to the body of Christ. Each one of us is indispensable. And, and this is the scary thing, but you guys are as dependent on me fulfilling my calling as I am on you fulfilling your calling in life. Romans 12, 4 through 5 says this. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And then 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Me thinking that my abilities make me superior to anybody else in the body of Christ is the height of stupidity and conceit. God gave me every ability I have for his purposes, and he can take them away from me in a second by a stroke. If it's his will. And let's say, for argument's sake, you know, I know there's some superior people out there. But let's say for argument's sake that someone here is superior to another person and they have more talents and abilities than any other person here, whatever, however you want to measure it. We would then need to ignore the probability that God in his fashioning of that person that we're comparing ourselves to has fashioned that person for his purposes and has given him and her a harder road to walk with less abilities than I have, right? And because of that, 
this person's walk might be more pleasing to God than, than mine because they have been more faithful and, and I have squandered my giftings in some ways. We should never compare ourselves to others, let alone be conceited about our abilities. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. There is another word for not wise. Fool, right? It's much safer for us to assume that the person next to us is better than us. Just safer all around. Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, it's not a bad thing to look out for your own interests. In fact, you should look out for your own interests. It's, it's, it's a necessity in life to look out for your own interests. But, but it's actually kind of fun to look out for someone else's interests, especially if they are Christians. They're always trying to figure out your angle, right? Because in this world, everyone's got an angle. A lot of people are jaded, especially if you're from New Jersey, right? <laughs> no one ever does anything unless they expect something in return. Even if they, their idea is creating a better society, by acting selflessly, they're getting something back. And you hear about this complaint a lot regarding missions, you know, especially in, in countries like India. Those Christians are only doing this so they can get people to become Christians. Do we want people to become Christians? Yeah, sure. Nothing would make us happier, right? But we aren't doing selfless acts to earn brownie points with God or to get a notch in our belt for winning someone to Christ. It's God's work, right? We are doing it because we are supposed to be other-centered and look out for the interests of others. So Paul, we, we want to be this other-centered, self-sacrificial person, can you give us an example that we can follow? Yes, he can. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? The mind that he had described in the verses 1 through 4. The mind of Christ is not something we do. He doesn't tell us to study this mind or work really hard to get this mind into yourself. Paul tells us to let this mind be in us. Let is telling us to get out of the way. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we can work against it, but if we let the Holy Spirit fill us, we will have the mind of Christ. And none of us will completely have the mind of Christ. For all eternity in heaven, we are always going to be approaching, but never attaining the mind of Christ. There's always going to be some new aspect that we have never seen. <coughs> As a 10-year-old, I was visiting my father's aunt and uncle in Arizona. And there wasn't a whole lot to do for a 10-year-old to do in a retirement community with 70-year-olds. And I saw these mountains in the distance. And I borrowed a bike and rode up the high-tension wire road to go see them. And I'm riding my bike for an hour and hour and a half. The mountains aren't getting any closer. 
They were the Superstition Mountains. They're about 30 miles away. Good thing it was October. But that's how it's like with us. We will have new revelations of God and Jesus and his mind, but we're never going to attain his mind. But if we let the Spirit work in us, we will get closer and closer, but we're never going to arrive. No Christian has ever arrived. Our only obligation is to let the Holy Spirit work in us. And Paul divides our example of Jesus between his incarnation in verse 7 and his crucifixion in verse 8. But before he gets into the incarnation, Paul establishes Jesus' preexistence in verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is echoing John 1.1 1, 1 in the beginning. Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Paul uses... Uh, the word form here, but don't think of it as a shape or a similarity, but uh, rather the, the same essence, the same nature, the same character as God. Before the incarnation, Jesus was already divine in every way, eternal, immortal, always existing, never not existing. And if any of us were to claim equality with God like Christ did, uh, it would be stealing God's glory. It's not something that any of us deserve, and it's not something that we are entitled to, but Jesus was and is entitled to all of God's glory, all of the rights and privileges of God. And of his own free will, he gave all of that up to become a man. And it's impossible for us to conceive all that Jesus gave up he gave up a place of holy perfection where he had total and absolute fellowship with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and he gave up the infinite to become finite. He gave up all the privileges of deity so that he could come into this fallen world and redeem us. You know, he did not give up his own divinity, but he gave up his glory and some of his being, actually, to become a man. And we, we talk about our rights. We, you know, we hold our rights. You know, we love our rights. I love my rights. The Bill of Rights. You know, Jesus is our example. He gave up every right and privilege as God. And then why did he do it? To become human out of love for us. So what did Jesus give up? Seven. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You know, the, the only reputation that Jesus had among religious people on earth was that he was a glutton, a drunk, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' represent, uh, re reputation among the, the people that claimed the greatest love for God was that he was disreputable. taking the form of a bondservant. He went from creator and ruler of the universe, praised by seraphim to a person who devoted himself to us with total disregard for his own interests. That is the mind of Christ. That, that is to be our mind. We are not to care about our reputations. And what is really more important, having a reputation with people or having a reputation with God. 
Don't care what other people think about you. Most of them aren't thinking about you anyway. They're thinking about themselves. And I became, become a bondservant. How did someone become a bondservant? Slavery was very different in Israel than it is in practice in the United States. And slavery conditions were laid out in Exodus 11. If you were poor or had gotten yourself into financial difficulty, they didn't have bankruptcy courts. And, and your creditors would sell you and a person in the community would buy you. And you would have all the rights and privileges of other Jewish persons in the community, only you would work for the person who bought you. And, and after six years, you decide, if you decide that this was a pretty good gig, you know, this, man, this, this guy that I've sold myself to, he takes much better care of me than I can take care of myself. And, and when you are freed after six years, uh, the only thing that, you know, you're thinking to yourself, the only good thing that I'm good at is getting myself into debt. And here I have a roof over my head, I have three meals a day, and in a survival situation, you know, that's a big deal, having three meals. You know, they, they live this just very, very close to life and death. And, and so uh, a lot of times a servant of a rich man lived better than a free poor man. And so if you decided that you were better off with your master, he would take you down to the judges and they would uh, pierce your ear with an awl. And from that day on, uh, you would serve your master until he died, and, or until you died. The imagery is great. We, we are bankrupt in our sins. We had no way to pay off our debts that we owed. Jesus bought us and has provided for us, and we have served him. And every day, we have a choice. We can go back to the world that left us beaten up and bankrupt, and, or we can choose to be his bondservant. Verse 8. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, today we look at the cross as a symbol of self-sacrifice. Um, you know, we, have, we have one here. Uh, but as most of you know, that is not how the cross was viewed in that time. It was a symbol of torture. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was considered inappropriate even to discuss crucifixion in polite company. And Jesus, beaten beyond recognition, naked, there's blood running down his body from the crown of thorns and from the nails and dripping on the ground and flies everywhere. The creation killing the creator, the most religious of God's people, cursing him and mocking him. And Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was only through Christ's sacrifice that makes the cross beautiful to us. But that does not begin to describe what Christ went through. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus prays, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, in the garden, about to be betrayed and crucified, he's given up all his glory and honor, and the Trinity is about to be broken uh, when God turns his back on his son and pours out his wrath on him. You know, he pours out the wrath, the sin of Adolf Hitler, the sin of every pornographer, the sin of every child molester, every, the sin of every sex trafficker. I have a son. He's here tonight. He told me that he would come tonight so that he could ignore my advice from the pulpit like he does at home. Hopefully it's not my advice he's getting tonight. 
even though he said that to me, I would never punish him for your sin. I'm pretty sure that he would not allow himself to be punished for someone else's sin, let alone the sin of the most vile people on the planet. And that is the love that God has for each one of us. That's the love that Jesus has. And that is the mind that we are asked to have by Paul. Not asked, sorry. Commanded to have by Paul when it comes to our brothers and sisters. And that is the mind of Christ. That is the love that we are to strive for in our lives. So how could Christ do this? He could do it because he was without selfish ambition conceit, but had lowliness of mind. And he esteemed others better than himself. And he looked out for the interest of others and not his own. But God did not leave Jesus on the cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and in those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God honored Christ's sacrifice. He will honor our sacrifice if we follow Christ's example. God will never let us be eternally injured by loving our brothers and forgiving their sins against us. And in fact, he's gonna bless, he'll bless us for it. Matthew 23, 11, 12. But he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant, and he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We all have our petty disputes, our hurts. We all carry with us how we've been slighted, and they're real. But if you compare them to the mind of Christ on the cross, they have to fade away to nothing. The problem that we have is that we live in a society that thinks with its feelings. And, our, and a lot of times people say that about the younger generations, but it's throughout all of society. My daughter tells me that I had an emotion once, but it died alone in the dark. I feel like Rodney Dangerfield, you know? But that's absolutely untrue. I've had at least three feelings in my life. The truth is that our emotions, or as the Bible calls it, our heart, will lie to us. Our feelings lie to us. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do we get joy by following our emotions? Or do we get joy by having the mind of Christ? You know, it feels good to follow your emotions, right? To, to just be angry at somebody. It feels good. But there is no joy in it. And if you're in an emotional situation that's destroying your relationship or within the body, I want to encourage you to take a step back and put on the mind of Christ. Put away selfish ambition and conceit. Be humble and esteem others better than yourself. Look out for the interests of others around you. Don't worry about your reputation. Become a bondservant to Christ and minister to those people 
that you have a contention with. Humble yourself and die to yourself. Because we are the body. And if things are going the way I think they're going to go, we're going to need each other. Can, can the body survive without a hand or a foot or an eye? Yes. But we're going to need those gifts. We're, and we're going to need the fruit of the Spirit in each of our lives to be magnified. And I want to be like this, and I fall short. Just ask my kids, they'll tell you. I want to be without selfish ambition. I don't want to be conceited. I don't. I don't want. I want to be of lowly mind and esteem others more than myself. I want to look out for others' interests. And and if somehow I could attain this to the degree that Paul is describing, I believe my life would be revived. And do we want to be like this? If all of us could somehow attain this to the degree that Paul is describing, what would be impossible for this church? What would be our impact on the community? There'd be more people wanting to move to Sarasota. It'd just be everywhere. If you are saying to yourself, yeah, I I want to do that, but I am never going to be able to do that, you're right. You can't do it, but God can through you. If you want prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit in your lives, you know, I I asked the elders or pastors, any elders or pastors here to to come up front after service and and pray, you know, if you want prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit, come on up here and, and we'll pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian tonight and, and you'd like to become one, it, it, it's a pretty simple process. Uh, admitting that you're a sinner, and a sinner is an archery term, missing, missing the bullseye. It's pretty easy for us to admit that we've missed the bullseye, bullseye at least on one occasion, right? And uh, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for you in place of you. And then confess your sins to God and turn and repent from them. That's all you need to do. And if you want prayer for that also, uh, feel free to come up and and speak with the elder pastors that are up here, elders or pastors that are up here. Let's close in a song.